Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I have two special guests on with me today. And if you are watching over YouTube, you can actually see their faces. I have Nathan Weiser and Carrie Baldwin. And what I'm going to do is we're going to have a discussion. It's not going to be a debate. It's just going to be a discussion about a really, really important topic for Christians and for libertarians, and especially for Christian libertarians, because we have to think about things from libertarian point of view, a Christian point of view. And that topic is the topic of abortion. Now, the goal of this conversation, among other things, is to sharpen our thinking about certain topics. And when we hear other people's perspectives and we hear our own perspectives may be challenged, or maybe even just new ideas, our thinking is sharpened. And because abortion is a pretty hot topic and because there's a lot of nuance, there's a lot of discussion, debate, especially in the non-Christian libertarian world, that's where we're going to start with uh, some of these discussions. And we're hoping on this podcast that we'll actually do a number of future discussions in the same vein, where it's like two or three people talking about a particular issue to further things. So, I've already introduced our guests, but what I'm going to do is have each of them introduce themselves so that you know who they are. So, Nathan, I'm going to have you go first. Yeah, uh, my name is Nathan Weiser. I am the co-owner of Basic Media, a production company in Oklahoma City. We are currently working on a documentary called A Storm Comes Rolling Down the Plain, and it's about the rise of abolitionism within the church. I am what's called an abolitionist. So, I think I'll have a chance to kind of introduce that more thoroughly, but just basically abolitionism is, you know, the continuation of the movement to abolish slavery or even the movement to abolish like child sacrifice and the early church and things like that. And it is, you know, now been reignited to abolish abortion. So that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to hopefully try and introduce abolitionism to a new audience. Excellent. Can you tell me why this is an important issue to you personally? Yeah, I mean, a huge part of my personality is, this sounds very vague and cheesy, but I want to see the church flourish and fulfill its role within history to abolish evil and spread the gospel. And I think part of spreading the gospel is, as the Great Commission tells us, to teach the world, you know, God's commandments. and. I'm personally a very eschatologically optimistic person. So a lot of my personality is wrapped up in that, getting to see the church grow and be refined through different you know, historical means and things like that. So uh, it's a little bit of a weird answer. Uh, I wish I had some sort of, you know, I survived yeah. abortion story or something like that, which I don't. But specifically, I'm very excited by what I'm seeing the church do in its this brand new activism that's coming mm. up around the issue of abortion. Yeah, excellent. I like your eschatology. The If someone <laughs> asks me from now on, I'm going to be like, I'm an optimist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just throw away all the big terms. I'm optimistic. Yeah, yeah. I'm an optimist. <laughs> that's great. That's great. <laughs> so, Carrie, what are, what are you all about and why is this an important issue to you? Okay, well, for those 
watching who haven't seen me on here before. I am a contributor with LCI, but I also have my own website called mereliberty.com where I have started to develop out a libertarian theory of abortion from a pro-life perspective. And I guess I'm most famously known for going toe-to-toe with Walter Block, the famous PhD economist and uh, anarchist theorist on his theory of abortion known as evictionism. And I survived. (laughs) 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 Um, At any rate, yeah, so I've got sort of a developing view of a concept called fetal self-ownership, which I believe is what gives fetuses their human rights from the moment conception is complete. And my view is distinct from what I call the conventional pro-life perspective. And I'm sure that we'll get into this a bit more, but I agree with Nathan that the conventional pro-life view is, is utterly failed. From my perspective, I think that they both fail. The the conventional pro-life side and the conventional pro-choice side both fail because they compromise on rights. Conventional pro-lifers compromise on women's rights in favor of the fetus and pro-choicers, conventional pro-choicers compromise on fetal rights in favor of the woman. And so as long as that compromise exists, we're going to experience conflict. So it's my position that libertarianism resolves this with the concept of property rights and self-ownership, and also that a freed market provides the milieu for us to come up with life-affirming innovations and choices for women in order to basically render abortion Mm -hmm. obsolete. Yeah. Well, already we can kind of see some alignment. If you're watching, you see heads nodding at each other's statements. And so one of the first things that I'm noticing here is the quote, conventional pro-life movement is insufficient. I forget what some of the words you've used. It seems like that's a real common point of agreement. I'd love to hear from each of you. And Carrie, I'll let you just continue and then I'll jump back to Nathan. What's some of the core reasons why the pro-life movement is just not working right now in your mind? Well, it's a couple of things, I think. First of all, their approach to legislation on abortion has been incremental, as Nathan mentioned. And for those who are not aware of what incrementalism is, it's just simply the idea that we sort of tip away very slowly mm-hmm. over the course of time. And eventually we arrive at, oh, we don't need abortion anymore. But I think really another problem with the conventional pro-life perspective is how they treat Roe v. Wade. And you know we've had discussions on the LCI roundtable round about Roe v. Wade and mm-hmm. the connection that Republicans and Republican-appointed justices have with with Roe v. Wade, and this false promise that if we just elect Republicans, that Roe v. Wade's going to get overturned. Yeah. And that's clearly not going to happen, not just because it's maybe difficult, but because I don't think it's on the agenda of the Republican Party, and I think they've demonstrated that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Nathan, how about you? What's going wrong so far with the pro-life movement? I mean, we the movement itself really in strength started in sort of the early to mid-80s and it gained with, you know, like the moral majority, a lot of Christian radio. There was a lot of, you know, it's been, what, 40 years, 50 years since Roe v. Wade mm-hmm. and we're not seeing it go away. We're not seeing it go right. back to pre-Roe times. For better or for worse, whatever that means, I'm sure we'll talk about some of the details, but like the movement's not working Maybe some people will come on and say, no, it is. Look at what we've accomplished. And they'll give some evidence. But in your mind, what's what's going wrong here? 
Well, I mean, the pro-life movement, they want to say that they've been successful because there has been a steady decline in abortions. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is that's, you know, surgical abortions. We actually don't even know because there's no recording of, you know, pill abortions and things like that. And the market has provided that other way that we can, you know, they can have abortions that is becoming very popular. At least we assume we don't actually know, but also, I mean, you can't attribute the steady decline in abortions to any sort of specific move that the pro-life movement has made. And, you know, it could just be the gospel, you know, actually reaching the abortion clinics or, you know, the culture shifting slowly. But the reason abolitionists want to differentiate ourselves from the pro-life movement is there's many reasons, but I think one that we can zero in on that we would actually agree on is this Roe v. Wade paradigm where the pro-life movement is insistent on let's try and eventually get abortion eradicated within the system that Roe v. Wade has given us. Mm -hmm. And the abolitionist movement is saying this incrementalist approach has not worked in 50 years or 40 years. I I apologize. I believe it's coming up on 50, right? It's almost 50. It's like 48. Yeah. um, It's not working. And we need to abolish abortion immediately and without compromise. So like what we actually say is we make an argument that libertarians should be very familiar with, which is the nullification argument. And many states right now, we are nullifying federal drug mandates and we're making marijuana legal recreationally or medicinally. And the federal government isn't really doing anything about it. But the pro-life movement has said, we're going to work within this federal system, even though we all believe it's an unconstitutional decision that they made, just like Dred Scott, which said that black people aren't people, you know, back in the day. What we should have done back then and what the abolitionists of slavery were, they were advocating for was let's nullify that decision by completely ignoring it. So what we're asking local legislators to do is ignore Roe. Like we're going to just make laws that abolish abortion. Mm-hmm. And then whenever the courts strike them down, we say, go pound sand. You know what I mean? We believe in our local jurisdictions, this isn't constitutional. Even if it was constitutional, it's not morally okay. And so yeah. we need to abolish abortion at this level and tell the federal government to go do its thing, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> the Christian... What, have yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I gotcha. It's one of those uh, moments where, on hand, it would be nice if you had like one of the early founding fathers have some sort of like clever poetic way of saying pound sand. But uh, yeah, you're we'll right. Have to, we'll have yeah. to look one up for and, and insert it or something. <laughs> and, I mean, and if I can actually interject here, there's lots of founding fathers. Which I mean, we don't. The founding fathers aren't arbiters of truth, right? Yeah. But many of them do say like, "Hey, the states are supposed to be the fourth balance of power." Like this is supposed to be part of our system in which yeah, yeah. whenever the three have like united against this, the states is supposed to come and mm-hmm. defy that. Like the Declaration of Independence literally says whenever an unjust government is tyrannical over the states, it's the state's duty to abolish yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's that A word, you know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Well, and even to push a little bit further, I mean, when the states get unruly, then it's it's left to the individuals. It's left right. to the people. So ultimately, right. it's the people. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Nathan, I think, you know, you've mentioned abolitionism. You've set it apart a little bit from the pro-life position. I'm going to give you more than an elevator's pitch time <laughs> here. So, you know, I don't know. I guess you probably know this as a video guy. People have an attention span of about three and a half to four and a half minutes. So uh, <laughs> can, can you give us the three and a half minute pitch of what is, and, and obviously it'll get fleshed out as we mm. talk about this. And you've heard a little bit of it as well. Uh, you know, you've already explained a little bit of it as well. But like, what's the... What's the distinguishing factor? What's the what's the pitch, I guess? Well, the first thing that kind of started, I'll tell a little bit of the story of the guy who kind of reignited abolitionism in Norman, Oklahoma. His name is T. Russell Hunter. And one of the first things he realized, this whole thing kind of started because he realized he was being an apathetic, hypocritical, bad Christian. And he was, you know, going through his day-to-day while there's an abortion, a very notorious abortion clinic down the street from where he's studying his PhD. And while he doesn't have a slave auction to abolish, he has this, this, you know, they're murdering hundreds of children a week on this building right here, you know, and I'm not doing anything about it was his thing. And he started to get involved in the pro-life movement. And he very quickly realized that there was actually, I want to lump everybody into this, but there's sort of this systemic aversion to the gospel being preached, just like gospel centrality around the movement is kind of avoided. So this was his first thing to kind of realize maybe there's another way, like maybe there's something else, some other approach I should be doing. And I'm just skipping a lot, but they eventually, you know, created the first abolitionist society and they actually created five tenets of abolitionism. And, um, you know, Calvinists, we have our tulips. Abolitionists, we have our gates, G-A-T-E-S. And it's gospel-centered, aligned providentially through the church, engaged biblically, and sought immediately and without compromise. And those five tenets are what distinguish us from the pro-life movement, because the pro-life movement kind of wants to push the gospel out of the equation. And then providentially, we say we're going to obey God and do what we've been commanded to do, and the results are his. So the duty is ours, the results are God's, right? But the pro-life movement wants to be pragmatic and try and work within, you know, let's get what we can get done, you know, slowly, and then eventually we can get this thing eradicated. But we say, no, our command, the command of scripture is that we establish justice now, you know, the time for justice is always now, in the words of Martin Luther King. And the abolitionist movement also says, you know, this is something that's going to happen through the church, just like the abolitionist of slavery. This was a church-led movement to abolish this evil. And that's what we want to do. We want to empower the church to be the spearhead against this evil. And that doesn't mean, you know, we don't want secularists, you know, allying with us, but we still want to make the point that this is the church's job and we want to engage it biblically, which, you know, we can go into that. But the main distinguishing factor is that we want to seek the abolition of evil or a specific evil, the specific evil being abortion right now, immediately and without compromise. And that's the biggest sticking point for a lot of people because that has many implications that I'm sure we'll get into about, you know, criminalization mm-hmm. and how do you enforce that and things like that. But that's the biggest difference, I guess, I would say between yeah. pro-life and abolition. Yeah. Okay. So that is 
an approach that I think a lot of people are attracted to in some way because it's uncompromising. It deals with how am I faithful to God's commands? How am I faithful as a Christian walking in the way of Christ? So it has a lot of appeal. Mm -hmm. Carrie, I think you might agree to some extent that there's some an, an appeal to kind of the things that I just mentioned, but you also have a different approach to being anti-abortion. Yeah, so I would say part of our common ground would definitely be that the libertarian pro-life approach is immediatist in the same sense that the abolitionists, the abortion abolitionists are immediatists. And I would say that we also agree with nullification. I think that, and this is based on what I've read from the abortion abolition website and just some interactions with known abolitionists. I won't name them since they aren't here to defend themselves. But <laughs> what I've learned from them is that what they mean by abolish is not the same thing that I mean by abolish. And maybe Nathan can speak more to that himself, but the way I conceive abortion, not to put a pun on that, but... <laughs> <laughs> You know, when I think of abolishing abortion, I think of ending the practice of abortion. And there's lots of things that the government has tried to end the practice of by using legislation and, you know, enforcement of that prohibition. And of course, the most immediate, obvious answer or example is the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. So I sort of go back to first principles on this, if you will. So I ask, first of all, what do we mean by abolish? For me, that means ending the practice of abortion. And so this is much more of a proxiological question. Although I do just want to say for the sake of everybody listening, I do believe abortion should be illegal. I'm not advocating for the safe, legal, and rare mantra, but I don't believe that... Probably good to clarify here. Yeah. That's good. I do believe in abortion prohibition. I don't believe that mere abortion prohibition will actually abolish abortion. But the other principle that I want to get back to is what civil governance actually is. And from a libertarian perspective, we would say that civil governance is the administration of justice. And this necessarily entails just judgment, but it also includes just enforcement. And we have a government right now that even, even though we have some just laws on the books, they almost always are not enforcing it in a just manner. So I would say, you know, if legally permitting initiatory violence, such as abortion, is unjust, then the administration of justice may not include legally permitting initiatory violence under the color of law. And that's where we get into problems with, with enforcement. So I think a libertarian position can absolutely be abolitionist, um, but I think it requires, number one, the just administration of law, which, number two, cannot violate the rights of, the, of, of accused women. And the impression that I get from the literature that I see from the abortion abolition website is that there's little concern for the rights of women. And probably, I'm guessing, just because women's rights is an emotionally charged term that almost always means... It's bundled with a lot of other things that we probably aren't really about. Right. Yeah. And so I think it's easy for us to... I mean, abortion abolitionists 
are morally outraged, which absolutely abortion is morally outrageous and we should be morally outraged at it. But I think that there's also too much of letting that outrage lead the conversation rather than stepping back and saying, okay, if we're going to actually do this without compromise, Mm -hmm. we need to understand why the pro-choice side sees this as morally outrageous too, why why they would see abortion prohibition as morally outrageous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they're we're talking past each other. And the only way that we're actually going to resolve the problem is if we understand why there's outrage on both sides. Yeah. Nathan, what do you mean when you want to out no, sorry, I, I was about to say the word outlaw. Um that's abolish. already given that's a given what abolish abortion. <laughs> is it the practice? Is it the legality? Is it like what what does that mean for you? Yeah, first of all, I just want to say, like, there are definitely a lot of different types of abolitionists, and very much so not all of them are libertarian. So I want to define my terms whenever I mean abolition. And I do think to a large extent, I speak for the movement whenever I use this definition of abolition. But I can't answer for people who do have an authoritarian mindset of justice. But Whenever I use the word abolition, and I know the authors of, um, I'm assuming the website that you're speaking of is Abolish Human Abortion, maybe? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think I can I can speak for the authors of this. Whenever they use the term abolition, what they mean is the formal ending of it. So they there's a distinction between abolition and eradication. There's a distinction because, you know, we know, like, just through history and through, you know, seeing things like the drug war, alcohol prohibition, that legal prohibition of something doesn't eradicate it. Or, you know, in the case of slavery, it doesn't eradicate it immediately. But what abolition is, is it's a formal, you know, there's a definitional undertone, meaning like a formal statement of abolition. Like if you read the def, like just the Merriam-Webster definition of abolition, and we have to look at it a little bit differently than while, you know, using the drug war as an example, we can learn a lot from it about like, you know, how we will actually go through the process of eradicating or abolishing abortion. We have to treat it just a little bit differently because, you know, we believe using drugs is a victimless crime. So therefore it's not a crime at all. While abortion is a victimed crime, we have to treat it differently than like we would alcohol or they treated alcohol in the past is I think basically what I'm trying to say. And while we know that this isn't going to end abortion immediately. We think there's a commandment of scripture for the culture to abolish it formally. And I would point to the many places in scripture in which the people as a collective unit were given collective responsibility. Like there's many times where I think one example I can use is Jesus saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the land that killed the prophets. He's specifically talking to, you know, the leaders of Jerusalem, but then he implicates the land, like the culture, the people for, you know, being okay with it. And Mm -hmm. so there's a collective responsibility for the culture to abolish abortion. And we want to, you know, tell the governing authorities, you know, your role, something that libertarians, we often have trouble with is saying, hey, Romans 13 has many ways in which it can be interpreted. And our response to that sometimes can be to just take it and kind of throw it away, which I'm not saying that's what you know everyone does. I don't want to implicate everyone in that. But 
if we can learn anything from Romans 13, it's that there is a purpose for the state right now. And I am an anarchist, but I look forward to a future where there's no longer a monopoly on the establishing of justice. But we can't get around Romans 13, 2 and 3, where they are an ordained minister who is told by God to establish punitive justice even. We even we throw away punitive justice as if it's not something that we can accept in a free society. But you know, in our Bible, like we're given an example where God says, hey, these are my ministers to punish evildoers. So we can't throw away punitive justice. There's still a role for it. I don't remember where I was going with that. I don't remember what the question was. <laughs> don't worry. I know I know where I know how it feels and sometimes mid-question. I've actually I've actually done that. So no, I totally understand. Carrie, I don't know if you have any additional thoughts on, you know, abolition. Well, actually, let me before I let you jump in there, it sounds to me, Nathan, like what you're saying is there's when you say the formal abolition of it, it would be something along the lines of we no longer have chattel slavery in the US. Right. Right. As opposed right. to like, of course, slavery can exist in its sort of like forms or or we no longer, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. There's a handful of things that cultures don't do anymore. And we've agreed as a culture, that's just, no, we're not doing that. That's ridiculous. That's, you know, barbaric right. or whatever. So you would want to see our culture treat abortion as a barbaric act that we no longer do. Yeah. And one of the unfortunate things about society right now is that, I mean, Galatians tells us that the law of is a tutor. And I know that specifically it's talking about the Judaic law, but mm-hmm. I think it's kind of obvious that that principle can be applied to our laws as well. Whenever you go on the streets and you talk about abortion, people say, well, it's legal, you know, like it's obviously yeah. okay because it's legal. So like there's a certain extent in which, you know, the governing authorities need to be, you know, giving a standard of justice. Mm-hmm. And I know you can take that to its ultimate degree and you could say, hey, then we need to make prostitution illegal. But I yeah. I think there's a tension here where I'm not entirely sure exactly where the line is, but I think the line is somewhere around the fact that abortion is a victimed crime rather than a victimless crime. And we should approach it differently because there's a victim. The involved. fetus isn't consenting the way a prostitute is consenting. Right, right or a prostitute's yeah. customer. Right. Yeah. So Nathan, can I ask you a question for clarification? Go for it. You would say that abolition means, in a formal sense, the cultural rejection of abortion. Yeah, and I think that can be extended to law as well. Um, yeah. If if you if I I have the loudest keyboard in the universe, but if I look up the definition of abolition, you're one of those the, people, huh? I'm sorry. <laughs> I need it. The action or an act of abolishing a system, practice, or institution. And that's got this definitional undertone of like, you know, institutional response to an evil. Right. So you would say that abortion abolition begins with making abortion illegal. Yes. And I think that at every level of government, and that Mm -hmm. includes communities, even to the individual, which I don't know what it means to make abortion illegal individually, but, you know, it's yeah. there. <laughs> well, I mean, you could get people to, I mean, there there can be voluntary agreements where people are some somewhat legally held liable to certain things. I mean, I guess there's there's always that. Yeah. One question that I have for you is the critique of incrementalism. I don't know, like, is this an all at once kind of 
the culture does away with it formally, and until then, there is no incrementally improved. Because, like, if you convince your jurisdiction to ignore Roe v. Wade and abolish abortion in your state, in your jurisdiction, like, to me, that's one increment toward abolition in your right. verbiage, right? So are those two just, are they incompatible, or is it just I'm not thinking about it the way you are? No, that's a good pushback, because that's, like, you have to accept increment a little bit, right? Because you have to it's better than not better than waiting for all of it to go away at once, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we want to incrementally abolish abortion by immediately abolishing it at different <laughs> levels, right? It's this yeah. weird tensioning thing where yeah. you're like, you know, there is an increment that is acceptable, but yeah. the problem with the pro-life increments is that they're we like to say they're iniquitous decrees because essentially what pro-life laws do, like say heartbeat bills, for example, many times they codify into state law, hey, you can have an abortion as long as it's before it has a heartbeat. That's what our laws, like, uh, that's what the vast majority of So it's, it's a moral compromise say. rather than mm-hmm. just a miniature version of abolition. Right. Or like they basically make it more difficult to have an abortion or they make you wait so that you think about it longer and those things are, while only on their own merit or, I guess, good, they are not in the service of abolishing something that's barbaric and immoral. Well, we would even go as far as to say that those laws are immoral because they're practicing ageism. They're saying, you know, that this person who has a heartbeat is of more value than someone who doesn't have a heartbeat. And that goes directly contradictory to scripture with scriptures that tell us to do not, in your courts, do not have impartiality. Leviticus 19.15 comes to mind. I think that's right. To be fair though, like, do you really think that's what they have in mind? Or do you think they're just doing everything they can legally to scramble to do something to just eliminate more abortion on the books? Right. I I don't think- Like, I don't want to assume motivations, Mm -hmm. but like, I honestly don't think that they think that it's the way in which you could say- like it's like the bumper sticker, abortion stops a beating heart. And like that was, you know, in my early 20s, that was kind of like my line of like, oh, well, by the time you, and I realize it's not always the case, but by the time you realize you're pregnant, there's a heartbeat to be detected. And therefore, mm-hmm. you know, that was kind of the reasoning that I was sort of, you know, 20 years ago, yeah. kind of thinking through. It's like, oh, by that time, then there's a heartbeat. Of course you can't kill your baby. So like, yeah. as soon as you know you're pregnant, it's too late for you to actually have an abortion. And in my mind, that's that's pro-life enough. I can't imagine those people, these legislatures, I mean, many of them are in the South, I think. I think a lot of these, and they're probably devout Christians, and they think that, like, within the system, this is a good idea because they can't outright abolish it. Yeah, I want I want to make a distinction between, you know, the pro-life leadership and your average pro-life person. I don't sure. want to attribute motive to even, you yeah, know, some right. legislators that their motive is like, hey, we're going to treat people with partiality. But... I think a lot of pro-lifers go, whenever they hear the arguments of abolition, they're like, this was an option. We could have just ignored bro this whole time. Why aren't we doing this? But the the problem is, is that if I could tell you about, you know, kind of what our struggle has been in Oklahoma, we have had three, maybe four abolitionist bills that have come to the legislators and the legislators have had a chance to read it. They've had a chance to go through, you know, the arguments and really try and figure it out. But the pro-life movement, the institutional pro-life movement, they're the first ones to try and stop the abolitionist bills. They're lobbyists, they're legislators. They'll mm-hmm. say, well, what this law is going to do 
is it's going to repeal all the pro-life laws that we've made in the past. And you're like, aren't we going for abolition though? I mean, is that not a good thing that like those laws are no longer needed, but they won't hear it. I mean, I don't want to be too conspiratorial, you know, put my tinfoil hat on here, but we have to at some point come to terms with the fact that there's a political machine here that is profiting off of this movement. Yeah. yeah. And in the abolitionist space, we want to call our brothers and sisters to, you know, look at this with your eyes fully open and go, how have I been apathetic? Like, yeah. is it enough that I've just been voting for these guys? Is that is that a holistic approach towards abolishing abortion in my life? You know, should I be doing something more? In all cases, I think, or people who, you know, really come to terms with these ideas are going, yeah, voting's not enough because these guys are intentionally, you know, blocking abolitionist bills and they're not doing what they need to be doing. So I've got to be at the abortion clinics. I got to be spreading the gospel. I've got to be, you know, I got to be doing what the what the Bible has commanded me to do in Proverbs 24:11. I've got to be rescuing those who are being carried off to death. Can I say something about Roe v. Wade? I want to mention something about the drug war too, but I think that's a longer conversation. But I want to talk about Roe v. Wade for a minute because yeah, sure. This is an opportunity, perhaps, for the abortion abolitionists to understand some of the outrage from the pro-choice side. And I'm going to preface this by saying the pro-choice side doesn't advocate for this, but this is nonetheless true of Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade is first and foremost about regulating women's bodies, and specifically women's bodies during pregnancy. Like, one of the reasons why the conventional pro-life strategy is this incrementalism, and it's not just you know, heartbeat bills. You know, it's requiring extra licenses for abortion clinics. It's requiring waiting periods, you know, requiring ultrasounds, all of these things that are supposed to basically put a stopgap between the woman's initial thought, I need to have an abortion, and the actual act of having an abortion, because there's this span of time where she could change her mind. And There's been studies done on this. First of all, it's a supply-side approach to the economic element of abortion. And the studies on that show that that doesn't work. Like, conventional pro-lifers want to attribute the reduction in the rate of abortions to their own efforts, but none of the data actually shows that, actually bears that out. There is formal studies that show that affecting the demand side of the abortion, so that has to do with the woman's choice, when we affect the demand side of abortion, the rates do, in fact, go down. In fact, there was one study where they found that, and this was not, by the way, this wasn't an an Austrian economic paper, but there was a paper called An Economic Approach to Abortion Demand by Donna S. Rothstein, And I pulled this quote from it. She says, the signs of the variabilities in the estimated abortion demand equation coincide with expectations. Price has a negative impact on abortion demand. It can be concluded at the 10% significance level that price has a significant effect on abortion demand. As price rises by $40, about one-fifth of its mean value, the abortion rate goes down by 1.64% on average. So there's a few reasons why Roe v. Wade doesn't work. Number one, it's regulating women's bodies. 
during pregnancy. Number two, it's regulating abortion. And if you actually read these court documents, not just Roe v. Wade, but the the other court decisions like Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the court won't overturn Roe because it looks bad for them. Because this is probably the first actual legislating from the bench that the Supreme Court did. And for them to actually repeal Roe v. Wade would be to admit that the Supreme Court is not capable of doing their job. Now, libertarians already know this, right? But there is this public (laughs) perception. There is this public perception about government that it has to work. But what women don't realize is that the policies on pregnancy, even when it's a baby you want to keep, these are all fundamentally founded in Roe v. Wade and the regulation of women's bodies. And as far as the economic aspect of it is concerned, what we find, which is a very Austrian view, is that price drives the demand for the service. And so if you have an expensive service, and by the way, one of the reasons why why that demand doesn't typically go down is because you have things like Medicaid and you know various subsidies for abortion clinics, Planned Parenthood, that sort of thing. You have government and, and other avenues offsetting that cost so that women can actually gain access to it. And if we just even stepped away from regulating the abortion industry then Planned Parenthood would be subject to all the market rules. But Roe v. Wade is bad for women. And it's not just bad for women because abortion is bad for women. Like, obviously, duh, that's, that should be a given. But I think it would be useful for abolitionists to understand why Roe v. Wade is bad for women apart from the, the abortion argument. Mm. Because when we, as libertarians, when we talk about self-ownership, We're talking about a woman's right to her own body. We're talking about bodily autonomy. We're talking about agency. These are things that the pro-choice side at least says that they want, right? They want a woman to be able to have autonomy over her body. Mm -hmm. They want a woman to have agency during her pregnancy. And there's no reason in the world why we can't grant them that while simultaneously saying, look, Yes, you have bodily autonomy. Yes, you have agency. It just doesn't extend to murder. So I have a clever line when I talk to my pro-choice friends where I'm like, I can probably out-pro-choice you on anything except (laughs) you're not allowed to kill your baby. Yeah. (laughs) So I believe women should have a right to carry a firearm openly. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I don't know if you guys even realize this, but when a woman gets pregnant and she wants to keep the baby... There are still many, many hospitals, medical groups, doctors, physicians, you name it, who don't believe that a woman should have a say or control over how her pregnancy should go. Mm. And that's a huge thing. Like I was told when I had when I had my kids, bring a birthing plan to the hospital, but don't count on anybody actually following it unless you've got somebody advocating for you. Mm. So you've still got this mentality in hospitals that women don't actually know what's best for them in their own bodies and what's best for their babies. And doctors are constantly trying to take control. And so there is this sense still among the medical community that women do not have bodily autonomy or agency. I mean, (laughs) we could bring up the vaccines for crying out loud, but 
That would be it. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a um, little far afield. Well, it, it sounds is, to me like you're you're saying that they have this sort of like it's almost like implicit sexism mm-hmm. or or maybe even classism. Like, hey, we're we're experts, we know more than you. Of course you're gonna do it our way. You must do it our way. Right. And if you've thought through any other thing like home birth or you know, not getting an epidural or something like that, it's like you must be, you know, backward or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's there's some benefit to understanding some of these these aspects of the debate that typically trying to respect the fact that Nathan doesn't <laughs> want to be called pro-lifer. Um, <laughs> um, just he is in sort, favor of the life of the unborn. So right. in that respect, he's well, a pro-lifer. The, the conservative side of this debate, yeah. so the, the culturally conservative, the Christian side of this debate, even as far as anti-abortion, abolition, that sort of thing, is to dismiss or disregard a lot of the things that are being said by pro-choicers just because their argument is, I want to be able to kill my baby. And I just think that that's, that, that mm-hmm. does us a disservice when we're the ones who are trying to end the, the practice of this. So unless Nathan wants to say anything to that, I do want to jump into the drug war stuff. Well, I would love to, I mean, that would be a good route for us to go, but I think the way I would bring that would bring us directly into something that we would disagree with on, you know, very much. <laughs> so I think... Well, that's that, fine. It, it, you please my audience to have strong disagreement on my show. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I was going to say is that I would love to get more into how Roe v. Wade, you know, hurts women's autonomy, because I think that's something that, you know, I would love to learn more about. And I'm having trouble exactly getting the clarity from you about like what, what specifically we're missing with, you know, how Roe v. Wade hurts women and how we're mm-hmm. perpetuating that. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you have any specific examples, Carrie? Of, I don't, uh, I don't have any quotes. We've, we've talked about it before on some of our round tables. The round table, but I, yeah. Yeah, but I'd have to pull some, some quotes. I do remember you coming up with some specifics on that. So, uh, unfortunately, we don't have them on hand. So, you know, listeners, well, watchers, you can go look at our round table stuff. The titles are pretty clear. What I can do is I can segue this into something that we definitely yeah. disagree on. And what I will say is that Roe v. Wade, you know, one of the reasons why it went the way it was was because Texas wasn't actually treating abortion. Their ban on abortion wasn't actually treating it as if it was murder. And something, a big sticking point for abolitionists is we want to say abortion is murder. And it's not just murder of the abortionist, but it's murder from the woman as well. So there's this thing that the pro-life movement does. It's called the second victim doctrine. And what they say is that the woman is also a victim of abortion. And, you know, while we affirm that, you know, that's the case many times, for the most part, this is an intentional decision that the woman is making to murder her child. It's premeditated. It follows every definition, even within like a Rothbardian viewpoint of murder. So we should treat it as murder equally. And that's where we're going to disagree because we say the laws against murder should be applied equally to all humans. And that mm-hmm. includes the unborn. And even to a theological point, the second victim narrative, it hurts women in the sense that it says, like in the pro-life movement, you'll see a lot of like, hey, we women are victims here. We can't bring the gospel to them because 
you know, they're as much victims as their children are. And it's like, mm-hmm. that's not how the gospel works. Like there is no sin too great that the cross can't handle it. And we have to bring a gospel that is completely uncompromised. So we have to come to these women and we have to say, listen, this is murder. And there are many women in the abolitionist movement who are post-abortive who have said, yes, I murdered my child and God has forgiven me of it. And, you know, that forgiveness is complete. I don't have to carry that shame. So there's, there's a testimony there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to say, I don't entirely disagree with you. The traditional Catholic view, which is the predominant conventional pro-life right. ground motive, we'll say, is the idea that is to perpetuate and project a victim mentality onto women. Now, I understand to some degree why they do that. I do think that they overstate it in many cases, but I'll just sort of I'll just sort of explain why in some cases women are victims. Mm-hmm. First of all, there are in- instances where the woman is being manipulated and coerced into doing it and she doesn't want to do it but doesn't see a way Absolutely. out. That's number 1. But number 2 is a lack of education. And we see this quite a bit with, you know, the public education system is not honest about what abortion is. And so you do have a lot of women who are just plain ignorant and have been persuaded that that really isn't a living human being. And in that case, I don't think that they're that qualifies as premeditated murder. Now you do have women, and you know, these are the ones who who catch our eye on on the YouTube videos who are, you know, screaming at you, shaking their fist at the sidewalk canvasser saying, yeah, I'm killing my baby and I'm proud of it. I'm going to come back next week and do it again, mm-hmm. right? And I think those are the women that have a tendency to really get the goat of those of yeah. us on the anti-abortion side. It's like, like, okay, you know it, yeah, right? And when you know it, then you have mens rea, right? Which is which is what you need in order to be able to say this is premeditated murder. So, you know, I would say that there's nuance in this whole victim mentality thing. I think that there are genuine victims. I think that there are women that are not genuine victims. Mm-hmm. That is really hard to parse out, especially when we're having to deal with coercion and and threats from family members because that does exist. So I'm not opposed to this idea that we call abortion murder because yeah. it is. Yeah. So I think that we agree there. I would just say we need to we need to nuance and I mean even in other aspects of the law we do have a concept for having to do something under duress, right? right. We right. don't consider somebody who's forced into committing a crime, you know, in order to save their their life or whatever. We say that happened under duress. That's not a legitimate crime. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think there's still room for this nuanced aspect of, you know, when is a woman a victim versus when is a woman actually murdering her child? Right. And if I could speak to that, I, I was going to make that point, but I think even in a broader point, we have to give room to the fact that Romans tells us, you know, the law of God is written on every heart. So, I mean, there are victims there are circumstances where there are victims, but that, that's like a, almost a separate issue because there's duress being involved and all of that. But I mean, if I'm not sure we can take the ignorance argument because ignorance is spoken explicitly in scripture about not being, you know, an excuse. 
I'm just not sure that we can say it's not premeditated murder if ignorance is the reasoning why. Well, what we do find in scripture, though, is that when your conscience isn't renewed, that that suppression can become so non-conscious that it doesn't rise to the surface. It's, it's that suppressed. Now, we might be getting a little drugged down into the weeds. I just wanted to, <laughs> to nuance the, the victim thing. Yeah, for sure. But, well, I, I wanted to jump in and just say, it sounds like, Nathan, what you're trying to say is that there is the default assumption that women are victims and that there's yeah. not. And, and I mean, with the exception of the rah-rah, I'm going to kill my baby, ladies on, on YouTube, that exception aside, it sounds like you're saying the church should be challenged into automatically assuming that every woman who's had an abortion is just a victim. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm not I sure I used the question. I might have used four double negatives, so that might have been <laughs> big confused or something like that, because I do sorry. that. Uh, no, well, it sounds like you're, you're saying that the church or individuals shouldn't just look at a woman who's had an abortion and only see her as a victim. Right. But to also consider the fact that it could have been what we might call premeditated or that she was very aware that this was something that she was doing, and it sounds like what you're saying is not she's just simply mistaken that it's murder, but that no, you need that she needs to be convinced that it is. It's not like she's off the hook and only a victim simply because she, oh, well, I, I don't think it's murder. I wasn't told, I was told it wasn't murder, but no, actually it is. And you did, did it anyway. I mean, is that, right. is that kind well, of where know, you're going? I know anecdotal evidence isn't perfect, but it's not worth sure. zero either. A lot of the conversations I have, I'd say most of the conversations I have with, you know, women who are going in, which, I mean, I got to be honest, it's like 98% I don't get to have a conversation because they just go. I think they're told to do that by the, the people in the abortion clinics, which I would just, as an aside, I would encourage you guys, if you haven't been to an abortion clinic, take some free time, go there and preach. It's a great it's a great practice grounds to learn how to preach the gospel because they don't want to hear it. <laughs> um, but also, you know, there's a perfect opportunity there to be Christ in a way that's like, you know, like it's not this puritanical yeah. handmaid's tale thing. Like, you know, you can show love, but in the conversations I do have, yeah, there's those that are like, yeah, I'm killing my baby. I've told my pastor about it, you know, or like, there's also lots where it's like, I know it's murder and I have to do it. And I don't know what else to do. And I know that it's wrong. And I know that God hates it, but I'm going to do it. Mm. And it's just anecdotal evidence. So I just want to say that it's not just, you know, the yelling, the rah, rah, rah. It's, it's more than just that. The law of God really is written on everyone's hearts and they know what they're doing. I want to say this just before we go off onto another topic, because Nathan, you, you had mentioned something about how you can't preach the gospel to a victim. And, you know, there are victims of domestic abuse, psychological abuse, emotional abuse. So these are non-physical forms of abuse who are genuine victims. Mm. And it, it takes them, if they ever come to a realization that they are victims, because you have to realize that before you can get out of that situation. I promise you that the thing that you do give a victim is the gospel. Like the thing that they need to hear because of what they've been told over and over and over about what a horrible person they are and nobody will ever love them. And nobody will ever love them because of all the, you know, you don't do this right and you don't do this right and you don't do this right and you don't do this right. They absolutely need to hear the gospel. 
They absolutely need to hear, yes, you're a sinner. And despite all of that, God loves you. God's forgiven yeah. your sins. Let me clarify what I said, or, or at least what I tried to say. I, yeah. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that the gospel isn't for victims. What I'm saying is that we compromise our gospel whenever we lie to people by claiming they're victims whenever in this specific instance they're not. And I'll clarify even that by saying, like, listen, we're all victims of the fall. Like, we're all victims of circumstance. So that gospel to the victims goes especially to them, but even to all of us. But what I'm specifically saying is that whenever someone is guilty of a sin and we say it's actually not a sin, we're compromising our gospel. That's all I'm saying. Does that clarification help you out, Carrie? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> well, we're all about clarifying some things here, so that's, no, that's good. I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to nuance it too much. Let's yeah, just no, put it I, that way. I totally yeah, get yeah, right. that. Um, so I don't, there's a, there's a number of places that this conversation could go and we're, we're at uh, 50% longer than a normal episode. And I do want to continue the conversation. Um, no, it's great. Um, I think the longest episode is like an hour and a half. And we're not, maybe we'll get there, but we're not quite there yet. <laughs> but I do want to talk about something that I think we both haven't, that we all have in common. And that is what kind of message do you have for the standard pro-life not advocate per se, but like the person who's just very much, I'm a pro-life Christian. It sounds like there's a lot here that they're missing. So for instance, you were talking about some of these incrementalist style laws that get in the way of abolishing abortion. And I think that the average person, I have a handful of these people in mind, you know, they're the ones that post things on Facebook, you know, articles about, you know, this law or that law, or, or it might just be an advocacy sort of thing. Like, oh, here's why abortion is terrible. We have those people that we know that are like in favor of these laws that you might say, whoa, this is really not in favor of what we're really going for. And in fact, you know, it's probably best that this doesn't pass, even though even though it doesn't feel good to say, I don't want that to pass, right? Like there is there is that like, yeah, but it would, you know, the beating heart laws, like we would stop more abortions, but there's other problems. And so there's a lot of like, hey, if I could talk to you, Mr. or Miss Pro-Lifer, about these laws, not just the laws, but even just the approach that they're taking. I know you've somewhat, you know, addressed that. What would each of you say that people are missing when they take the conventional view? This is my way of saying, let's summarize. <laughs> <laughs> I see. How but you goes. can be directive. You can be like, hey, I'm, I'm speaking to someone who I'm concerned is not, not doing a good enough job of advocating against abortion. Yeah, so I think, you know, if we're if we're summing things up here, I think there are two aspects that need to be considered. First of all, obviously is the the legal aspect, which we've discussed ad nauseum so far. So, but the second aspect really is the praxeological aspect. And when it comes down to it, especially now that we have the abortion pill, right? It's super easy. I mean, even if abortion were abolished, it would be very easy. As a medical procedure. Yes. Legally, it's now illegal to have an abortion. You are still going to be able to get the abortion pills. There's two of them because you'll always have a doctor who's willing to prescribe them. And Mm -hmm. so when it comes down to ending the practice of abortion, what we're talking about is that woman making a choice. And the only one standing between the abortion pill 
in her hand and that baby is the woman. And so you don't necessarily have an opportunity to see that a child's life is in danger. Many times you can go through this process and nobody would be the wiser, right? Because from the outside, a medical abortion can look just like a miscarriage. And so if we really want to reach those women who managed to get a hold of a pill, an abortion pill, then we have to have already leveraged the the economy, the the market, Hmm. not just by way of crisis pregnancy centers, but by way of all of these other innovations that make motherhood easier. So that when she's looking at that pill, she can have an opportunity to have a moment of clarity and say, you know what, there is there is enough support for me out there that I can do this and and throw that away. Mm-hmm. But that's a praxeological thing. And I know that, you know, Nathaniel wants to, and certainly there's a spiritual aspect to that. But I don't think, especially since God has given us, you know, all of these things that that we talk about that men and women create. We make all of these things for the economy, for service to others, for our own progress. That's all part of God's plan as well. And so there's no reason in the world why we can't also leverage a a market response so that that woman standing in her bathroom with nobody around to see her can think twice about taking that pill. That's what we're talking about when, or that's what I'm talking about at least, ending the practice of abortion, how do you get that woman mm-hmm. who's managed to get an illegal pill and get her to make the choice, the voluntary choice to to throw it away? And how do you think, make people not want the service or the result? Yeah. Do I have enough time to just ask one clarification? Yeah, sure, question? go ahead. One thing I fear about this is that this approach towards ending abortion requires that we eradicate like socialistic behavior from our government first and have like a pure, you know, Austrian approach towards the economy before abortion can be abolished. Is that your argument? My argument is that I look forward to a future where there's no longer a monopoly on establishing justice mm-hmm. as an anarchist. I, you know, look forward to that future, but I don't think an anarchist should say, hey, the first thing we should do is we should make laws or, or, or like if for some reason, pedophilia was legalized, which, you know, the way things are going. Like, I don't think an anarchist would be saying, well, now that there's laws, there's no longer laws against pedophilia, we can't reintroduce them. And we have to wait until there's, we have like a free society in order to abolish pedophilia. Yeah, no, I think that sort of idea, we have to do X first before we can do Y is too linear. That's not compatible with how we see spontaneous order, which is just, you know, things happening without our Mm -hmm. control, without a central control. So when I'm talking about what do we do now, right? Sure, the legislation, the legislation to nullify Roe v. Wade is great. I do think that that legislation, though, needs to include nullification of authoritarian enforcement, I don't see why we can't do that because legislation does have an enforcement paragraph or or section, right? How are we going to enforce this? And it is not uncommon for that enforcement section to go amend other parts of the law. 
And so if we're going to nullify Roe v. Wade, there's no reason why we can't also nullify tough on crime legislation and, you know, policies that really strike fear in the heart of pro-choicers, right? We've got no-knock raids, we've got all of this stuff, and we didn't get to get into the parallels with the drug war. But we have we have a lot of absolutely horrendous injustice in the enforcement of law that needs to be nullified as well. So if you're introducing legislation to nullify Roe v. Wade, great. I think it should include nullification of these authoritarian enforcement. But at the same time, like if that's AA's you know, milieu, that's what they're going for. I think other libertarians can be, you know, dealing with the the economic side of things, which we are, right? Fighting for a free economy, deregulation, all of that stuff. Even crisis pregnancy centers, I've said this a number of times on the podcast, crisis pregnancy centers outnumber the amount of abortion clinics, Planned Parenthood clinics in America. And they provide many more services than just, hey, we can find an adoption agency for you. So that's a, that's a free market option for providing these alternatives. So is it linear? No, but all of these things are happening all at once and they need to happen all at once. I would say if you pass legislation first, like if that, if that happens to go first in the timeline, then pro-life libertarians should be in that area working even harder to deregulate because we have to have deregulation of the economy in order to have the the economic effect of innovations mm-hmm. and provisions that are life affirming and giving that woman options that can help her feel like yes I can do this and abortion is this expensive barbaric risky thing that I don't want to invest in. So whether criminalization happens first or a deregulated market happens first is sort of beside the point. We can't actually plan that, right? And I'm not saying don't do this and let's do this. I'm saying this stuff has to happen all together because that's how spontaneous order works. Does that make sense? Yeah, I see what you're saying. Cool. So is it my turn to summarize? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the question is, you know, you know, what do I do, right? There's a lot of people who will hear these ideas and they'll be like, great, so I go abolish abortion, what, yeah. you know? And one, I can point you to this great website called rescuethose.com that literally is like, here are the things you do, you know? But there's this thing that we've all done at one point where we've repented of our apathy. In abolitionist circles, we like to say repent with us. I'm currently repenting of my apathy. I'm not doing enough. You know, my ultimate purpose is to glorify God. And right now I'm not doing it enough. Like I'm not trying to preach like a works-based gospel, but I'm not living up to the standard that the word calls me to. I need to be doing more. So that's what I would call like, you know, your average pro-life Christian do is, you know, really take a look into this stuff like this. There's sort of like this, we use this term a lot that it's really, People are going to be like, whoa, why say this? There's a willful ignorance that tends to happen. And we say that because we all know that this thing is still happening. And even if we believe logically that abortion is murder and it's killing of a human, we sort of act as if it's not 
as big of a deal as a normal murder. Like we treat the unborn as if they're less than human, even if we don't want to admit it. And if we truly embraced the horror of the fact that thousands of children are being murdered every day, there's, I think it's 26 million worldwide have been murdered this year and counting. It's absolutely atrocious. And we need to repent of just our ability to like the, like the story of the good Samaritan, the ability that we have to walk to the other side of the road. We have to repent of that. And we need to be, we need to ask God, like, show me this in my soul, that this is a huge deal. This is a huge, huge deal. And we need to approach this with that mindset that like this no holds bar uncompromising mindset that this has to be abolished. And, um, you know, we could get more into the weeds of the different stuff, but I would encourage people to just go, uh, check out some of these different resources where people have had these debates over the last 10 years. There's abolishhumanabortion.com. There's Southern Baptists abolishing abortion. Rescuethose.com is a great resource. I'm working on a documentary called A Storm Comes Rolling Down the Plain. And if you Google that, you'll find the GoFundMe and you can help us raise that, which it's not fully funded, but it's still coming out. Yeah. Can I add just one thing to what you had mentioned, Nathan, about um, the repentance aspect? I think we are seeing right now a willful ignorance or turning a blind eye to the state. and. You know, I think this this question about, I mean, it's very easy, I think, for Christians to turn a blind eye to abortion because it's sanitized murder. It's like you said, we're not we're not actually paying attention to how horrific it is. But at the same time, we do that with a number of things. We do we do that with criminal justice and how prisoners are treated. We do that with the war on terror, all of our our militarization. I say we, I mean, you know, Americans. I've, (laughs) we libertarians have figured this out, I think. Um, But, you know, by and large, Christians turn a blind eye to a lot of atrocities that are done simply because they assume that the state is this given it's civil governance it is not you know we've differentiated that so we've been able to say no what they're doing is wrong but i think part of this recognizing that they're turning a blind eye to abortion entails really opening their eyes to what is going on with the state more broadly as well Mm. I agree. And it's like democracy is almost like this excuse that Christians have been given where it's like you click this check mark and I've done my part, you know, and that's something we all need to kind of repent of. Yeah. Or even or even recognizing there are lots of pro-lifers out there who will say, well, I'm pro-life, but right, because they recognize that it's that it's a complex issue. There are all of these these facets involved. And the reality is, is that every aspect of life is multifaceted. And so being able to say, you know, first of all, when they say I'm pro-life, but, right, they're recognizing that there is a complexity of issues that one, either they haven't thought through or they don't want to think through or they've tried to think through and they just, they end up, you know, Mm -hmm. going in circles. Or they see the volatility of the outrage on both sides and just don't want to be involved in it at all. 
And so that's why, I mean, I, I hope that people watch this and see, okay, Nathan and I don't agree on everything, but we can have a conversation about this. Yeah, We can talk about this. We can talk about our common ground. We can talk about our differences. There doesn't need to be outrage, but we can both recognize that this is a problem that needs a solution. So I have a question, Nathan, you were talking about involvement and that we need to repent of our apathy and... Maybe I'm assuming that you mean something, and so I want to get some clarification on that. There are only so many things that an individual can be passionate about and devote their time to. So many people devote their time to helping refugees or helping immigrants or doing all kinds of things that are totally worthy and are gospel-centric. Is this an issue that you think people should sort of flock to or are you are like are there Christians who who it's okay for them to be anti-abortion maybe even an abortion abolitionist like you are and you know support the kind of causes that you're doing but not actually go to the abortion clinic and try to reach people individually well this is something that is a sticking point for a lot of people but something and this is an argument I'm not entirely ready to make um okay. so I would encourage people to like go and look at other if you Google like special calling arguments is something that we would point to as, you know, the abolition of slavery. Yeah. Everyone has their own gifting and their own special calling. But if you were in that moment, would you really say like, well, I'll leave the underground railroad to those who, you know, have been called to do that. I mean, maybe you would have said that in that moment, but if you would have been able to exist today, go back in time and be back then, I think you would have been totally clamoring to be a part of that underground railroad And we've all been given the command to teach, you know, God's law. That's not really a special calling. That's a calling for all Christians. So I'm not entirely ready to make that nuanced argument on that yet, because I'm still something I'm trying to work through. But I would just say, if you look at this thing and you go, wow, that's really bad. People specifically are called for that. And I'm called to do this thing. I think that's really a tragedy. And I think that's something that you should really reorient yourself and really take a second look at. And I'm not saying this has to be your whole purpose in life, but I do think that this is a gospel centered issue and the gospel is a command for all people. There's like a few things that like specifically, like there's a, you must do thing. We have this list here. You must rescue those being carried off to death. That's a commandment in scripture in Proverbs 24, 11. You must reject the approval of murder, which, you know, is more like a rhetoric thing. But there's even, you know, more nuanced things like, you know, you need to be rejecting or really studying, like, how do birth controls work? How, how are they abortifacient in their system of how they stop pregnancy? How are fetal tissues being used in vaccine research and development? How is that immoral? You know, really take a look into these specific issues and figure out, you know, should I be doing more than just voting, I guess. And I think that's that's the main point I'm trying to say is that voting is not, one, it's not doing enough, and two, it's not doing anything. Voting or sharing (laughs) nice articles online, yeah. Right, right. I think, (laughs) and Nathan, I don't know, I think probably for me, the abortion abolition language on this is a little strong in my opinion, because I think it at least feels like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the impression that I get from it is that there is a connection between how much you do 
to be anti-abortion in order to ensure your salvation or ensure some sort of national blessing. And so there's some theology behind that, that there are plenty of Christians who would disagree with with the theology? I mean, we alluded to your your optimistic view of eschatology. <laughs> um, I'm an amillennialist, so I'm a little bit of a neutral aunt on that. <laughs> um, but you know, and maybe this is where I'm not abolitionist enough. I mean, I think I'm immediatist. I think I want. You know, I would say I do want to actually abolish here. Yeah. abortion, right? But I would say that, you know, from the perspective, since I look at the praxeological perspective, right? Mm-hmm. And even when we talk about economics and trade and specialization and all of the impacts, spontaneous order and the connectivity and how all of those things are interconnected, right? Even the person who is designing some, I don't know, home education curriculum for somebody will turn out to be the tool that a woman needs in order to make sure that, you know, she can provide for for her child, Mm -hmm. right? And so, I mean, even when it comes to, and I'm with you on the birth control thing, because hormonal birth control is bad for women more than just (laughs) the fact that it's an abortifacient. It's terrible for, for your health. But more than that is, is even innovation in ways of preventing pregnancy, preventing those unwanted pregnancies that don't involve abortion. We need that sort of innovation. That still helps the woman down the road who winds up with an unwanted pregnancy. So there are these things that seem very unrelated Mm -hmm. to the abortion issue directly that I don't want to discount. You know, there's a podcast. Sort of an indirect activism or purposiveness to... To, doing, well, to being part of this, but knowing knowing that what you're doing is is contributing to a cause. Yeah. Again, not that we're against immediacy, of course, like you said, but like that there is a long game too. I mean, there will be there will be a need for being anti-abortion in 20 years. Sure. I mean, even like the the scientist who who might be working on some technology that eventually makes artificial womb technology possible. Right. What up, Walter? <laughs> I, I was wondering when that was going to come up or we were like at the yeah. end here, but yeah. Um, but that's the point is like you might have you might have an engineer and engineers are, and I, I have a brother who's an engineer and I have a dad who's an engineer, so I can say this. They have zero personality whatsoever and they would not do good in front of an abortion clinic. <laughs> um, yeah. So if I could actually jump on your side and agree with you on this. Uh, oh, okay, good. I, uh, I want to say that there actually is a danger here. And this is something I'm trying to work through in my head. So I'm it's some, I'm in muddy waters here. There's actually a danger of, you know, subscribing to a social justice gospel where, yeah. you know, the biggest issue is no longer sin, but the issue is apathy. Right. You know, I, I don't want to say that like anything other than Christ is not the answer. Like, I don't want to say that like actions or activism is the answer to the problem of the human condition. Christ is the only answer. So um, I want to push back on myself with that and say that, like, don't follow the social justice gospel, but follow the christ the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think if we understand that God created us all to do things and to create things, and we don't even know how 
God's going to use those things. I mean, for crying out loud, one of the things that I am able to, you know, homeschool my kids with while I work from home is the fact that we can buy cheap computers. So Bill Gates doesn't even know that he is helping me teach my kids about anarchism and why his totalitarian crap is wrong. Um, (laughs) So, but that's the point, right? Is there are so many things that, and I think it was it was either G.K. Chesterton or C.S. Lewis who said something about how everything in the economy supports the family, it supports women and, you know, women raising children. And that is, I can't tell you how true that is. You know, the guy who invented the, the washer machine, right? That was a gift to women. Now I don't have to, you know, hand wash that and, and hang it up to dry. So we never know what these these things going on in the economy. Do you have to rely on the male plumber if it breaks? <laughs> <laughs> or can awesome. I go or can I go to YouTube and maybe learn oh, it for myself? You. Yeah, yeah. You know, the point is is that we don't know how our gifts and our talents and our yeah. vocational callings actually will ultimately help. But I think probably what does need to be addressed is when the question comes up, maybe it's a theoretical question, right? And somebody just wants to be like, Meh, I don't know. And they they stop engaging. Like that would probably be an area where maybe they need to change course and start engaging just so that they can become informed and really address the issue again. Hmm. Or maybe they come in contact with a friend who's actually thinking about having an abortion. They have an unplanned pregnancy. Instead of saying, you know, I'm I'm sorry, that's a difficult decision and leaving them to it, you wouldn't want to to do that either. I think that's that's probably an area where Christians specifically should that's God's cue. <laughs> He's telling you, hey, your friend just came to you, you know, or hey, your friend just tried to engage in a conversation with you about this. Hmm. So, you know, perhaps that is is helpful in terms of, you know, what do we do if we're being willfully ignorant about this? But I don't think that it would be right to try to say that everybody's passion and vocation and calling needs to directly affect abortion abolition because we, we just can't this, see that. If I could make this my, my argument extremely vague so that it like still fits with what you just yeah, said. Sure. But what I'm trying to say is that this is a gospel issue and that every but you should be gospel centered in their life and that the gospel or being gospel centered has implications that we as a culture need to put forth the gospel and that affects the culture specifically in issues of evil. So that's as vague as an argument as I'm willing to make, <laughs> if that makes sense. But, and, and I think it's probably one that we're with which we all agree. Right, yeah. right, say right. that in a really formal way, yeah. but we all agree with. Uh, <laughs> so I really appreciate both of you coming on and to having this discussion. Clearly, we didn't get to everything that we said, oh, maybe we'll get to this later. Oh, maybe we'll get to this later. But you know what yeah, that means, right? That means there's a follow-up conversation that can be had yeah. You know, after we've uh, sharpened our minds even more uh, on this. So Carrie, Nathan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. 
If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.